So we're live, man. Welcome to the podcast, first ever live YouTube stream. Yeah. Uh, coming to I'm I'm coming to you from BGC Manila in the KMC building on the 25th floor. Another one. Working space is a little bit of an event going on in the background, and um, I'm I'm here interviewing one of my I'd like to say one of my best friends. Is that is that a are we are we official like that or? I think we are. I, I would stepping. I would put you in the same category, Rico. Oh man, feel feel the love here, Luke <laughs> Francis. You were in the first batch of interviews for this podcast. Yeah, podcast, and that was a time when you just done your uh, your crowdfunding launch for these watches that I'm wearing right now. Yeah, it's a lovely looking watch you're wearing. All right, so uh, before we jump into the podcast, I feel like I'm putting on like a radio voice here. But before we <laughs> jump into the podcast, I'm going to play the intro music. I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. Luke, man. Um, so, like I said, you're in the first batch of of, of podcasts. How, like, how does it feel to be to be back? I mean, it's been like, I mean, it's been a solid three, four years. Yeah, I mean, oh, how times have changed, right? I mean, I think the first time I came on it was very doughy-eyed, optimistic. Uh, you know, newly successful in a in a crowdfunding campaign, and so it was a very upbeat. Uh, and I, I'm not to say that this one's not going to be upbeat, but, uh, you know, things changed a lot. And, you know, we can definitely talk about what happened after that, because that, you know, as far as made in China is concerned, that's kind of where history stopped for us. Mm. And, uh, you know, we can talk about what happened after that, but it, it didn't continue in that same trajectory, which is kind of interesting to think about that, you know, the first time I came on, like things were looking amazing. And then shortly thereafter, it took a, took a different uh, took a different path. Yeah, and then I mean, eventually we ended up uh, partnering on on Enter China, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which was a which was an interesting experience. Are we gonna are we gonna talk about that? I don't think I've ever really gone deep into it in a in a, in a public form. I talked yeah. about it with Nick very briefly, but it was more just like matter of fact type of thing, right? With uh, Zebra? No, no, Nick Ramil. Oh, Ramil, yeah. yeah. So I think we can definitely talk about it. And I think there's probably people that will listen to this that could benefit from, you know, whatever conversation we have around that. Well, definitely. I definitely learned a lot. Um, Okay. So just kind of, just let's start at the sort of the beginning, just to recap uh, Mm -hmm. what brought you to China, just really briefly. But obviously if people want to have more information about that, they should go listen to that. I I feel like it's episode four uh, of the Made in China podcast. But just for the people who are maybe on the on the YouTube live stream or something like that, like give a little yeah. spiel. Sure. So I started a watch campaign on uh, on Indiegogo, the watch that Rico is repping right now. Man, I should I should have put mine on. I actually am wearing Garibaldi. We have uh, we have th- well, three people watching right now. On the- oh, hey, what's up, people? We have names. Uh, no one's wrote a comment yet. I don't think you see them until they write a comment. Got it. Okay. Well, um, yeah, so watch campaign. And, you know, before that, I had 
was working in the uh, kind of nine to five cubicle life out of college and did that for two years. And that was, uh, it was a grind and I wanted to get out and like do my own thing, stop being bossed around, be my own boss, you know, that kind of mindset. And uh, so I was looking around for opportunities and I, I saw this opportunity with men's watches and then also specifically men's watches crowdfunded on like a Kickstarter or Indiegogo. And so I uh, went down that path and started designing my own watch, which you can see wonderfully displayed there on Rico's wrist. If you're not watching this on video, go check out the YouTube channel. You can see that beautiful watch. Um, yeah, I mean, I've worn it. I've worn it quite quite a few times on the on the YouTube channel. So it's like a this is made from airplane grade aluminum, right? Airplane grade aluminum, and uh, the campaign went well. Raised over eighty five thousand dollars and that's when I came on the podcast and I shared about my whole process there and what I did to get to that point. Um, and that was a lot of fun to talk about, but then shortly thereafter, what we didn't get to talk about was, um, something that would be great topic for this podcast, but, uh, is the production problems I had. So essentially I, I manufactured 800 watches, and I would say probably 90% of those were defective. And I mailed all of them and started getting mass emails back about the problems with the watches. And because of those problems, it kind of derailed that first business that I had set up there, the watch business. Um, so started with like a bang and if things were going in the right direction and then kind of ended with a thud. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's kind of the story of, of Morveau watches. That was my first foray into entrepreneurship. I think we'll revisit the sort of manufacturing issues uh, a little bit later, but what about, uh, and then the next thing was like, we started working on enter China together as a, as a partner. So that's, let's briefly touch on that before we do a deep dive later. Yeah. So shortly after Morveau was kind of going downhill, um, I got together with Rico and Nick and uh, and uh, another friend of ours, Mike Michelini, who is a Global from Asia podcast. And uh, we we got together and formed a partnership around Inner China, which is like a community of entrepreneurs doing business in China, manufacturing physical products. And that's kind of how I got introduced to China and even had kind of the understanding of where to start along my journey. And so joining in with these guys was also, it was a great opportunity to, to be able to take something that was very beneficial for me and, and present it to other people. Uh, ultimately after about a year, I want to say it was a year, maybe a year and a half. Uh, but I think probably more like a year. Um, I, I stepped away from that partnership. Uh, and it was, it was, uh, it was just less than a year. It was about to be. Okay, yeah. Because if we stayed on for a year, then we would still have some percentage of ownership. Right. <laughs> we do not have percentage of ownership. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so we stepped away, Rico and I, and uh, yeah. And then I went on to do another partnership focusing on helping brands sell online and majority of that was focused on Amazon FBA brands, um, but some bigger brands as well. With, with a fellow InterChina member. 
Ralph. Yeah, fellow InterChina member Ralph Schechtery from Germany. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we, we started. By the, by the way, did you meet Ralph at the uh, InterChina events that, that I, I used to host? Yes, I met Ralph in Guangzhou, I think around the event that we put together to go to Canton Fair. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, the Canton Fair. That was the that was the bigger like big EC meetup members type of thing. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. It's interesting how that works. Yeah, no, and and honestly, like we we just talked, and that was that. And then later, we were both kind of doing the same service based model of helping brands grow, and and I approached him, and we just kind of hit it off, and then move forward together in the same direction, and formed a partnership and, and that went, it went really well. Um, but recently we've decided to kind of actually at the beginning of this year, we decided to step away from that because, um, as far as Amazon's concerned, the, the writing is kind of on the wall. Things are getting a little, uh, ridiculous in my personal opinion, uh, from, on the Amazon side, uh, making it hyper challenging, especially for new players in the Amazon game, but even for existing what, ones. What do, you mean, what do you mean specifically? You mean Amazon itself is making it more difficult for new, new yeah. to, to be successful on the platform? Yeah. I mean, you could Can say... You a few specific uh, things that right. are... Right. You could say that um, it's, it's just become more competitive, but competition is always what's going to happen when a market is, uh, you know, ripe with profit. But... Um, so more people are coming in. That's, that's step number one. But then step number two is Amazon is really cracking down on what they're allowing. And it seems quite arbitrary at times. Um, and their support mechanism is, is really not solid towards helping sellers. Their primary goal is to help their, their customers. And they do a really good job at that. Um, but in so doing, they're not taking care of their sellers very well. Um, and, and the support on the seller side is like, oh, well, we'll give you a, a dedicated support person, but you got to pay for, pay that person's salary. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, yeah, if you sell enough, you get a dedicated support person, but even then that's, a, <laughs> you know, whether or not they're actually going to help you with, with what you need is, is a mixed bag. Yeah. And, the, and then the kind of standard Amazon support is, is just that it's super standard. It's, it's not very beneficial. Like you've got people that sometimes you wonder, like, you know, are you talking to a human being? <laughs> so, um, like, yeah, things can go. And, and it's not just for like uh, small private label sellers. Um, one of our brands that we were working with was Procter and Gamble. And, you know, this is a multi, billion dollar company and they they had the same issues that we were seeing on the private label side with support just like we couldn't get listings back up because of problems and uh you know we would fix a problem but then they would say it wasn't fixed and we fit everything within uh the guidelines and yet support is not there to assist you with the moving forward and so you've got some best-selling product that you can't keep selling as you're waiting for support to like kind of figure out their stuff on their end and uh, you know, to help, you know, help get the listing back up. So that can be incredibly frustrating, even for the small seller to the large seller. Um, And then also like 
you probably see in the news, but Europe is challenging Amazon on antitrust um, grounds. And it's looking like the U.S. is going to go down the same route around the fact that they're selling their own private label products on their own platform. And they're giving advertising and marketing preference to their products. And we've seen this on listings that we were managing where Amazon would be the featured advertisement on our listing, uh, even though we were paying for the advertising spots on our listing. Uh, so, you know, there are, uh, there's some fishing tactics going on there that you're not really sure if it's intentional or if it's just an oopsie on Amazon's part. And of course that's what they're claiming, but, uh, yeah, it's just getting more challenging. So we, we stepped away from that and, uh, and now I'm, uh, at the current moment, helping two brands to, to grow in their share of the market, become ubiquitous in their, uh, in their various fields. So for instance, um, Ralph is, is one of my current clients and I'm helping him with his Venturi brand of uh, hiking socks. And you can go check it out on Indiegogo because we just finished it raised $35,000, 177% of the goal amount there. I really uh, was able to validate that there's a need for a new type of hiking sock, which is exactly what we wanted to do. I think we helped uh, source the the, the samples on that. Yeah. SFA for the win. Yeah. Um, just to, just so that people don't know, we're filming a day in the life today. So if you see uh, our marketing intern filming some B-roll around me, don't be surprised. And then there's, obviously there's an event going on in the space. Um, okay, so then uh, also some other big changes in, in your personal life in the last the last couple of years, like where you're based now in Chiang Mai, but you spent quite a bit of time in Vietnam. Actually, I think after we sort of parted with, with EC, you decided to travel around China, which I think was your original goal when you first got to China was to sort of go around the country. and. Explore. Yeah. I've so always been fascinated by China. From there, yeah. So I wanted to, I wanted to travel. Actually, the first thing that got me fascinated in China, and I don't know if anybody has a kind of Chinophile, Sinophile interest, but uh, have you ever seen that movie Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? Oh, of course. It's a classic, man. Yeah, dude. I saw that as a kid and I, I was like, I have to go to this country. Of course, when I showed up in 2009, it was nothing like that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I was still very interested and that's actually what made me want to come back in 2014, yeah. 15. So, uh but then I was kind of full on in the production mode for the watches. So it wasn't until after the kind of things crumbled on that side of things that I was able to get the freedom to travel around China like I initially wanted to. So I went out to Western China, checked out a bunch of the really cool cities out there and countryside areas. And yeah, I had a blast. If you haven't traveled in China, you should definitely do it. Like if you're just visiting factories, I would recommend like scheduling a weekend away and to, you know, go check out Western China. Yangshuo is one of Rico and I's favorite places to go for yeah, a little R and R. Super easy to get to these places. If you have like the C trip app, you just book a high speed train, like from mm-hmm. Guangzhou to Yangshuo. I think it's a two hour high speed train. Uh, you yep. out there and you know, it's also very, very inexpensive. Like I think the train ticket itself is maybe like, uh, $30 or something like that. And then, you know, accommodation can go from 
ten dollars a night to you know hundreds, depending on what. And even a ten dollar a night or fifteen twenty dollar a night hostel is going to be a really nice place. Like uh, yeah. the one that the one that you've recommended to me. I think if you get the private room, which I got, uh, I think it's like twenty dollars a night or something like that. Super reasonable. You wake up with a view of these beautiful karst formations, like these yeah. mountains that just come straight up out of the ground. Yeah, it's, so this is a this is a live. So I don't know if I could. I don't know if I. I could actually do that. I could pull up the B roll of of Young Show and share my screen, but I don't know. We'll, we'll get it. Need a little bit more pre planning for that. Gosh, I feel like I look like a Sith Lord right now. There's no light on my face. <laughs> oh, you're fine. You're fine. So uh, you spent some time traveling around uh, China, and then you ended up going to Vietnam, right? Yep. Yep. I went down to Vietnam. I. I was just kind of getting tired of China for the moment. I can't even remember why, but I was just, I was ready to kind of take a break. And I heard that Saigon was a pretty nice hub for kind of the digital nomad life. And so I went down to Saigon to check things out. And uh, yeah, that was awesome. We like, have four, four people on the, on the live stream. Welcome, welcome everybody. Got three likes. Uh, feel free to drop some uh, comments in the in the comment section. I'll stop from time to time to check those. Yeah. Let us know. What do you want to know? But um, yeah, I went down to Vietnam and Saigon has a, a very uh, fast-paced feel and very happening scene. Uh, it's it's uh, It feels truly like the wild, wild east out there in Vietnam. Super, super fast-developing people are hungry, like the local Vietnamese are hungry. And then there's a lot of digital nomads out there that are really hustling to get their stuff, you know, to be successful. So, um, yeah, it's got a very, uh, you know, fast paced scene. And I guess maybe what you were alluding to earlier is that, uh, when I was there, I met my current wife. So, uh, started dating, this uh, this woman out there, and then we got married, and now we have a son. So I have a, my, and he just turned one actually, in the beginning of August, nice. and that's a, it's wild, man. It's super wild, but it's it's cool to to think my son has just turned one. I'm still getting used to being a dad. <laughs> yeah, I'm still I'm still not used to you being a dad. <laughs> It'd be weird the first time I see you like in person with the kid. Yeah. It was weird. The first time I saw Mike with his kid, I was like, "This isn't." This is this real, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so then, and then now you're in Chiang Mai. So what's now? That? We came over here because, I mean, Saigon's great for fast pace, uh, you know, happening a lifestyle. But uh, I was looking for something a little bit slower. And the, another problem is that comes with that is like air quality is really bad in in Saigon. So. Um, I wanted to get some fresher air for my son and his little lungs. And so we, uh, we moved out here to Chiang Mai, <laughs> but we came during burning season, which if you don't know, it's like this season where for like two months, they just burn a bunch of old crops. And so everything was like smoky and the air quality was like the worst in the world. And that's when we showed up. <laughs> yeah. So, great timing. Before we jump into what you're doing now, business-wise, uh, maybe we could revisit InterChina because, I, I, like I said before, I've touched on it briefly in the past, but I never really did a, a deep dive into why I stepped down and 
you know, kind of a, the lessons learned from that situation. Um, so we we stepped on at the same time. I remember I remember when I sent the email. I think me and you had been going back and forth. I was traveling. I think I was in Zambia at the time, and I was literally about to get on a plane to fly back to China. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I was like, no, nah, I just have to sit down and bang this out. So I was like in the departure lounge. I was in the in the private lounge because you know, like a boss. You know what I'm saying? I'm yeah, that's how you do. The, you know, the boss life. Uh, I don't know what to <laughs> swag. <laughs> so I'm in the departure lounge, just like having a whiskey, waiting for my flight. And I'm just like, fuck it. I'm just gonna bang out this this email. So I mean, I, I think I made a Google Doc and just wrote all my thoughts and tried mm-hmm. to be as uh, honest about why I was stepping down, but also um, as res- as respectful as possible. And then I think I sent it to you. Uh, and then I hopped on a plane, and then I arrived, uh, tran- transited through Dubai. And you, I think you sent the email, right? Like you, you looked at the doc and added your thoughts, and then you sent the. I think you sent the email from correct. Yeah. I can't remember, but um, you're or maybe probably you sent right. it back to me, and then I sent it. I don't know. Yeah, I, I know I added some stuff, but yeah, yeah, one of us sent it. <laughs> yeah, and then I, I arrived in Hong Kong, and uh, Nick was like, "Can we meet?" So I ended up like going to sit down with Nick in person, discussing um, how well he accepted the situation, but he was just like, "Both of you at the same time is a huge hole." Um, so he was like, "I'm just going to ask you guys if you can transition." Uh, nicely from this and help with the, the new people that come on and, and onboarding and passwords and just kind of helping them uh, learn how we were running the operations. Um, so I guess I'll start because uh, you know, I think I have talked about this to other people, but essentially the, the biggest issue was that the direction in which we were going was not, we didn't agree with that. And then there was also a, there was a change in sort of the partnership agreement without like an informal change in the partnership agreement. So like, um, you know, I think originally when Nick started, when Nick brought us on, his whole idea was that I have these commitments at Brink as a partner and I have to invest all my time and effort into Brink, but I would like to keep Entertrainer alive and be a part of it, but not necessarily run it on a daily basis. And, and also I think he just, cause it was dead he couldn't really, and when I say dead, as in they weren't onboarding new uh, members and there were no member events. Like the, the WeChat group was still relatively active, but there wasn't any sort of formal interaction um, and not as much engagement. And also the Facebook group, same thing. So uh, I think his, his thought you're, on, I think he, you're talking about before we came on board. Before we came on, on yeah, 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 I think I think this is where his mind was before he invited us on. So I think that he was looking at it and being like, "Well, I get asked about this thing a lot. Uh, clearly, you know, a lot of members have benefited from this, but I just I just don't have the time to create a team and all that stuff. Um, and I I think maybe at the time he didn't see necessarily you know where it could go." So it was just like a sort of last ditched, hey, I'm going to bring on, you know, members that are in the community that are success stories who can then sort of take this in a new direction. And, and I will step down and be an advisor, advisor role and my percentage of ownership will be much lower. And then the reality was, I think once it started to pick up and, and, and became, you know, when, when, you start, when we started to bring on members and we started making some revenue and you know, that the team was kind of gelling. I think he got inspired 
and wanted to play with his toys again kind of thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> Fair so, way to put it. Yeah, I think it was that kind of thing. It was like, this is the, that. And then really, I think this. I think Nick is passionate about this kind of stuff, working with entrepreneurs and startups. And, you know, Interchina is a perfect model for that because you're working directly with people that are launching businesses. And, you know, we there's a framework around that. So I think he started to become more involved and then started to become more involved in the decision-making prog- process and then sort of became, started acting in a CEO role. Which which also entailed us going in a direction that we wanted to go content first, new content first, and then more community engagement actively. You know, sort of supporting the the, the community a little bit more in in their steps as they launch businesses. Um, I think his thing was more like the content is good enough. Let's drive more sales, and then we'll improve on the content or up, update the content later. Um, as we sort of hire out people, and then we have more time to focus on those things. So that, that in my opinion, is the core of it. Uh, maybe you can expand, and then we can talk a little bit more. Did I did I, I did I dance nicely in like in the... <laughs> <laughs> like an expert salsa master? Yeah, yeah. Um, respectful but honest. Yeah. So I mean, even just from like. A, maybe what will be helpful towards some people that are thinking about entering partnerships. Um, one, you know, one thing that I really got out of this five people, five people on the live stream. Uh, one thing I really got out of this was that really considering who the, the personalities involved in, in the partnership, um, really considering what the motives are for everybody. Um, you know, where the level of commitment is and, you know, where you sit and being honest with yourself. And, and on, you know, for me, it was being honest with myself about where I sat with the whole thing as well. And that, I think when, when you're clearly aligned on all those things and then you have, you decide to enter the partnership, it has a potential to be a lot more successful. I think we all just saw a great opportunity and uh, didn't, fully assess the the necessary parts of what it meant to come into a partnership together. I think that was part of it too, is because later it was kind of like, you know, you, you get into a relationship and you start reassessing things after the fact. And there was a lot of that dynamic going on as well. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. What do you think about like the the partnership dynamic, Rico? Because I think that was a big part of it was just like knowing knowing the partners involved. Well, well, there's some positives that I think I took from how the partnership was structured. I, I really liked the idea of uh, sweat equity uh, early yeah. the course of, of three years, because I mean, essentially, what the purpose was that if people stepped down early, then they could still take that equity and bring on other partners which is essentially what happened, right? So that's something that I've always taken now when I think about forming business uh, partnerships with other people. And when people ask me about, you know, my experience working with, uh, with, with more than one business partner, then I always, I recommend people um, get into sweat equity, have a sweat equity agreement. Uh, I guess just to briefly explain what that is. It's just basically you, you don't, if you have three business partners or four business partners that form a company, a startup, uh, rather than just giving out ownership at the beginning, saying, "Hey, you get thirty percent, twenty percent, whatever, fifty, based off of uh, based off of your work and investment," 
you agree to the percentages at the beginning, but you don't actually own those percentages. You earn money as if you as you do. So if the company is paying out uh, dividends or bonuses or whatever, you'd earn your your you know proposed percentage, but you only truly earn it every year based off of time and performance. And mm-hmm. you can set it up where it's sweat equity over the course of three years. For I think the standard is four years. Um, and it's just performance based and, and, and it's good. So like if you stay after a year, let's say you get, let's say you were supposed to get 30% total. They break it down into three years. So after a year, you get 10% and then after two years, uh, 20% and, and so on and so forth. So if you, as I mentioned, if you do step down prior to activating all of your, your commitments and, 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 and equity, then you would lose whatever the balance is of that, that percentage. Um, so that was one thing that I really liked in terms of the, the partnership dynamic. I think that we had roles that because we didn't know necessarily, like that was the first time that I'd ever, I, I'd spoken to Michelini before. Um, I think I'd been on his podcast or he'd been on mine, but that was the first time that I ever like had a, you know, extensive relationship with him, right. uh, worked with him. Uh, same thing with Nick. It's like, I knew Nick, I knew him more as a mentor to mm-hmm. actually start working with him, that dynamic. Me and you were buddies, so it was like, I, I know you as a person. I kind of know that you're, I know that if I communicate something to you, you're going to listen and you will you know, give me your honest feedback on it, but you'll also be like respectful and there's, um, there's an aspect where you're more understanding. Like, And I, I think I'm the same way. Like, I, I try to sort of, approach things from, I try to be empathetic is the word I'm looking for. Um, what's your, just real quick, like what's your thoughts on partnerships with buddies, with friends, with close friends? I've never done it before. I think, <laughs> I think in general, I probably wouldn't want to do it unless I, unless, I mean, it depends if your friend is an entrepreneur and, and you know, you've, you've seen what that person has done in their business. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong as long as again, clearly defined structures and rules and, and, and you know, a, a contract in place where you, this is the business and this is our business relationship and our friendship remains separate. And I think if you, if you do that, then it's fine. Um, I think when, you know, you're just buddies that, you know, this guy has a job and that guy has a job and you decide to start a company together. I think sometimes that can, that can go awry unless you yeah. have sort of right sort of team in place. And it has, it really depends on the personalities too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, if you do have two people that are very aggressive and they're friends and, you know, then they could start to, to clash and butt heads. But if you're a reasonable person and you know, sort of more level headed and, and you're able to sort of compromise and you're comfortable doing that, then maybe it can work out. Yeah. Cause stuff's going to happen. Things are going to go wrong. Yeah, and that's uh, that'll test any partnership. But then also, if there's a friendship dynamic, that can ruin the friendship too. Yeah. So I mean, going back to it, uh, I think because of the the things that I mentioned, we were expecting certain people to execute in one way and to have these responsibilities from a managerial uh, perspective, but it didn't quite work out that way, and then things changed. So. Yeah, I think the partnership dynamics weren't weren't the best, and and they uh, they also evolved in a way that that we weren't uh, particularly happy with. Didn't anticipate. Didn't didn't anticipate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I guess. <laughs> I mean, there's also a couple heated situations. Uh, 
like I said, you you and you and Mr. Rommel have an interesting relationship. It's like a it's like a big brother yeah. type of <laughs> type of vibe. Well, and I think really if you are going to get into a partnership at all, like yeah. there's there should be an expectation that it's there's going to be heated moments. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about growing something that um, you've invested time and money in, and heart and soul, mm-hmm. and you're, you know, to when when somebody comes in with a objection or something that is not the direction that you want to take things, it's really like <laughs> parenting a child, right? And one parent says, "I want to go, I want to teach our kid to do kung fu," and the other parents like hell no, I'm not teaching my kid violence or something like that. Right. And then you have this knockdown drag out conversation. And I mean, that's the, because you both love something, it's going to, you know, that's to be expected. I think it's, it's definitely, you have to expect it for one, but then figure out what kind of person you are and how you process that and how you deal with it with the other person and and kind of move past it. Cause it's just going to keep happening. I mean, it never doesn't happen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, of course. And yeah, not to, I guess not to harp on it too much, but I think, yeah, it was for me, another aspect that I didn't mention as to why I stepped down, it wasn't just the the direction of the business. I was also literally running to, like I was running two startups at the same time. Like I would spend that mm-hmm. time I would spend, I would work on SFA stuff from eight o'clock in the morning till 2 p.m., 3 p.m. And then I'd switch to enter China from like 2, 3 p.m. till like 10. And Sometimes, especially when we started doing uh, webinars, the travel and then meeting for all hands on decks and stuff like that, the travel aspect was like really taking a toll. Like, yeah. Literally, Source Financial was suffering. Like we were scaling and I couldn't uh, put my time and effort to put systems in place to scale effectively. So we had projects that were affected. Um, I hired certain employees just to fill a gap, like not following the right procedures in, in hiring. Um, there was a time period when Imogen actually called me out on that. Uh, she was like, I just feel like you're just hiring people just to hire people. Like, you know, like these people don't care about the company. These people are not like the best for the business and stuff. But yeah. So that was part of it. Having the, the sort of come to Jesus moment where I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, she's right. Like, and the reason why I'm doing this is because I don't have time to actually sit down and, and work on, on my core business, the business that is, is uh, supporting me. Um, so yeah, that was a big part of it as well. It wasn't just the partnership dynamics. It was, also me wanting to put 100% of my focus into, into Source Find Asia. Um, so just closing that out, obviously now they've gone in a different direction, uh, which I think is, I think what they're doing right now is great. I, I think, you know, the, the partnership team that they have now, Travis Lavelle, Nick Zeber, I'm, I'm a, I really like Nick Zeber, like a, a, I would consider him a good friend. I've slept at his place a couple of times in Hong Kong. And yeah, they've built this now Accelerate program that they, they sell and it's uh, you know pretty pricey. I know they don't. They wouldn't want me to mention specifically what it is because uh, it changes and stuff. But uh, you know, it's sort of an A to Z on how to launch uh, physical product business through crowd, with a crowdfunding lean, um, which sort of leads me to what we were talking about before. You kind of, as a person that joined into China and launched your own crowdfunding campaign, you kind of were. You kind of are using the blueprints and, and obviously sitting down with Nick and and, um, uh, and Tim, you kind of are part of what they use to build these, the, the Accelerate program, right? Um, 
what do you think you mentioned before you had a lot of issues with the manufacturing side of things what 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 are those specifics and what did you learn from that yeah i think so it's it's something well, well the first wait, thing wait, look sorry yeah. uh, you can think about that question i just want to answer one of oh this is, well, we have a couple questions in the comment section um so mekong, mekong tropical farm asks uh are manufacturers in china beginning to move to other asian countries like vietnam and thailand uh so yes uh but it's a, it's like a very specific type of manufacturer that's moving so yeah the, these factories are developing in places like vietnam and thailand and, and the philippines um and a lot of times they're, they're owned by by chinese manufacturers um but it's mostly in the textiles space uh it's a lot of the products that involve that involve like manual like manual labor like literally somebody sitting down and, and sewing something because the cost of labor is so much lower in these countries um but the reality is that their moqs like if you were to make something in vietnam or thailand or the philippines let's say the moq in china would be 300 units in in these countries the moq would be 20000 you know like they they're just dealing on a much larger scale so it's mostly large businesses that are able to leverage shifting to you know the surrounding countries of course you can find some suppliers here that will do smaller things, but smaller orders. But again, it's like, where do you find them? Because you can search in Alibaba, but there's very few suppliers that are in, in this, the surrounding countries that are listed in Alibaba. So it's like the sourcing aspect, finding those factories is an issue. And then being able to actually, you know, match their minimum order quantities is an issue. So yeah, China's still, China's just figured out a lot of things in terms of logistics, uh, uh, how to effectively make a profit on a small order in a production line, um, how to you know systemize their operations and stuff like that and use less manual labor, more machinery. These are things that these countries just don't have. They don't have that sort of infrastructure. You can ship something from Beijing to Guangzhou in a day and a half for $2. And just to give you some perspective on, on the distance, uh, it's a six-hour, it should be a six-hour flight, I think, from Beijing to, to, to Guangzhou like that should not that should be way more expensive so hope that answers your question uh, can I can I ask a clarifying question there sure so I think a lot of people are worried about the tariffs with oh, yeah. the US right now and do you think that the the cost of that comes the extra cost that comes with not having the systems and the infrastructure in place in Vietnam and Thailand and Cambodia uh, equals out the difference between the tariff cost and, you know, manufacturing in these other locations outside of China? I think it depends. I think it depends on a product to product uh, basis because uh, there are certain products that haven't really been affected by the tariffs. There are products that are more high margin products where, you know, even with the tariffs, the people are still making a, a pretty decent profit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll give you an example. Nick Nerov is, is one of my friends. He's been on the podcast a bunch of times. Uh, he sells uh, beauty gloves uh, on Amazon, and he's been pretty successful for the past four years. He his taxes, his import uh, fees actually went down <laughs> because uh, the freight so forwarder identified. <laughs> yeah, the freight forwarder identified that he could use a different HS code to to put his uh, gloves in a different category. Okay. Ultimately, instead of paying whatever he was paying before, his his taxes went down literally by half. So, 
yeah, there is some products, some products that you have to like finagle away and figure out can this could be put. Can you make a change to the product that makes it a different HS code? Can can your freight forwarder figure out just a different HS code for that product? Um, and then if you were to shift to one of these other countries, weighing up having to place a ten thousand unit order versus a smaller one in China, what would be you know your profit margin on that, and can you do it? Like I think it's definitely going to be a product to product case basis. Mm-hmm. But the on fact the that there are these, sorry, sorry, on the products that are affected by the tariffs, what yeah. would you say? Well, uh, I mean, a big example for us is we have CrossFit equipment uh, clients, and they've been affected by this. Um, like literally, all of their stuff went up by twenty percent. Their import, and they they do like big numbers. But they're still staying in China because they just know that they really can't replicate that the the quality and those products anywhere else. So it's just a diff- it's difficult, you know, it's it, until those countries develop the infrastructure, it's like you, you can't really rely on, on them to to produce the same quality and the same quantities and things like that. But I think what will happen is you will start to see a little bit of a shift, more of a shift where some of these factories that are making more technical products mm. uh just from from their perspective they're just gonna say like well i need to shift to you know vietnam just to lower my costs so i can still like uh maintain the same business you know yeah because as a your uh the crossfit client as an established brand they probably have a mentality that they can kind of wait it out uh and you know hopefully it gets sorted within the next year or so yeah. but for newer brands they might not have that option. Um, so it seems like maybe a, a forward thinking approach would be to diversify, you know, suppliers, even having multiple countries that can produce your product to the same spec. Yeah, I think I think that's the smart move. I mean, I'm doing that right now is I'm trying to develop partnerships in uh, in the Philippines, uh, in India, in Vietnam. So if there are certain products that a client approaches us with, we could explore that option and see, you know, is it possible to make this product in an in a, in a affordable way in those countries? Um, Harrison Bevins, who's developing a bag right now, uh, I think his crowdfunding campaign launches in a couple of months. He sourced a supplier in, uh, in Vietnam and he sourced a supplier in China. And he made prototypes with both, so you know he's uh, he's he's trying to see what it, what the best option would be based off of price, based off of. Were they pretty comparable? Do you know? Uh, I think yeah, the prices were comparable. China was more expensive, but mm-hmm. again, the MOQs in in Vietnam uh, were much higher, and then the speed I think of communication was was different, just because. You know, the dealing with the Chinese manufacturers, they're used to this, like making a prototype and stuff like that is is just standard, you know. So it's like um, they just have those systems in place to move quicker. Got it. All right. Uh, yeah. So do you remember the question I asked you before we we went on a ten minute diatribe? Uh, tariffs. I think it was like what made the difference, like what what caused the problems, or. More though? Yeah, just, just getting into the specifics of the, the manufacturing issues that you had. Yeah. I think really... What, what do you learn from that whole... That yeah, whole at, the, at the end of the day, the lesson that I learned was, um, you know, vet your factory really well. And if you don't know how to do that, you either have to learn 
or bring somebody on that already knows. And so I approached SourceFind Asia uh, late. Uh, this is when the shit had already hit the fan. And <laughs> I was trying to rec like just recoup anything I could. And that's when I brought SourceFind Asia in. But it was too late at that point. There was really nothing you guys could do. Um, and if, if I had brought you guys on earlier, I think the the most fundamental flaw from the very beginning was was factory selection like my partner selection um, i think i chose the wrong partner for manufacturing and if if there was a good system in place that i knew of at the time to select the right factory that would have completely weeded them out from the very beginning stages but since i didn't know that i was working off of a referral and i pretty much just took that as a, that referral as gold and just said, okay, whatever they say, I'll do that. Um, and it didn't work out. Uh, and so specifically, I think another thing that I learned was I need to understand how my product comes together a lot better. So what ended up happening was I said, I, I want to figure out how to sell this product. Like that was the number one thing that I, you know, basically on marketing, those guys are the, the product people, right? Like the factory will take care of product development. And, you know, so I figured out what the market wants and I figured out how to sell this to the market. But what I didn't learn was how to make a watch. And I ended up learning how to make a watch when I showed up on the factory floor and I was like, okay, how does this thing work? And they're like walking me through the stages of watch production. And the, the reason I say that I should learn before I go to the factory is because basically if you don't have any knowledge ahead of time, you go in and whatever they tell you is right. You know, that's how, that's how things are made, you know, but if they're doing something wrong or if they're not doing something to the, you know, the highest standard, uh, then, and you don't know how the product comes together independently of what they tell you, then you have no idea where, where potential could be or potential problems could arise. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's exactly what happened to me. It looked like we were putting together a pretty sweet looking watch that functioned excellent. Um, but then at the end of the day, you know, 90% of the units broke. So, um, you know, they look great, but they, they didn't function great. And the, the flaw, and just to get really technical, I mean, the flaw was, it is as simple as how much pressure was applied to the glass uh, when they when they push the glass onto the watch, and even like a bigger part of that flaw is like this part of the watch here, the case, and how thick it is, dependent on the size of the glass, gives you how much space you have between the glass and the face where your your watch dials can tick, your watch hands can tick, and they didn't have enough space to tick, so after a while they get stuck on the glass, and then your watch doesn't tell time, and that's what it's for. So if it doesn't do that, people will. Uh, <laughs> you know, complain. And, uh, you know, if I had known that about this potential problem, I would have been able to solve that. Um, also the reason I say the biggest problem was like who I selected is because when the shit hit the fan, if I had a good partner, a man, good manufacturing partner, they would take ownership of the problems that they cause and then provide solutions. Uh, this manufacturer didn't even take ownership for their problems and then didn't provide any solutions. Basically like, oops, sorry. <laughs> and, uh, and then left me with the bill. 
And so that's, uh, that's why you want to make sure you select the right partner because when things do go wrong and inevitably something will happen, even if they're a great, you know, quality manufacturing partner, there's going to be some issue and how they respond to that issue is, is crucial to the life of your business, especially in the early days. So I think, yeah, a hundred percent choose the right manufacturing partner. And if you don't know what that means, talk to Rico. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, just to give a few pointers, actually the, the funny thing is uh, I did a webinar presentation last week, Friday, and uh, I used uh, your your situation as a case study, <laughs> but uh, no, I think it's important. Like, uh, even if you get a, a, a word of mouth introduction to a factory, I think it's still important to get multiple options. So when Luke was talking about uh, figuring out how the product works, so this is something I tell my 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 employees all the time. Is like when we're doing research and we don't have that much experience with a, sp- a specific product, feel free to burn through three, four, five factories just asking them a shit ton of questions about how the product comes together and what the materials mm-hmm. are supposed to be. And then what you can do is gather that information and then go to the next factory. And now you come across as somebody who kind of understands uh, how the product is made a little bit. And the next factory is not going to ta- take advantage of you. And then in terms of just understanding the process, it's visiting multiple factories, seeing that, having that, taking those factory tours where they walk you through the manufacturing process. Um, So, you know, a a good example would be like learning the difference between an assembly house and an actual factory, right? Like an assembly house takes multiple parts of a product and they put it together. The factory will be actually baking those parts in house and then they also assemble the products. And if you work with an assembly house, then something to keep in mind is that they are working with other suppliers. So if, if a specific part is not correct, you know, are they going to try their best to then follow up with that supplier and fix it? Um, you know, so it's just like if the, the factory is doing most of the stuff in-house, then they have control over the actual manufacturing process and they can fix problems as it comes up. So it's like little things like that, like you, you have to really pay attention to and understanding the manufacturing process when you're coming from it with a non-technical background or if you don't have any experience in, in, in the product. Um, and, you know, one, one note on that too is don't skimp on... Pull on. Uh, again, feel free to ask questions. Uh, welcome, Kusanta Ola. I think she's speaking. He or she is speaking Spanish. And say they don't. He says it. I don't speak English, but I like to listen to you. All right, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Says okay. It, in in Spanish, he says, uh, "I don't." Uh, he doesn't speak English, or she doesn't speak English, but that she likes or he likes listening to me. So, I don't know. I got that smooth jazz voice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, silky smooth jazz. Hey, what's up, guys? Um, yeah, what I was saying though, is don't skimp on, uh, quality control as well. Um, I, I think there's typically the way it works and Rico can correct me if this is wrong, but it, there's like a, there's always an in-house option on quality control. Like a, oh, yeah. the yeah. factory will always offer to see your product for free. I mean, it's nice, but like, no, <laughs> like yeah. such a huge conflict of interest there. Right. So, so usually uh, maybe a hundred percent of the time, don't take that option. Um, but the second option is to hire somebody to do QC for you. And I think as I assess where I went wrong and other people manufacturing technical products with, uh, fail points that are pretty significant, like work with a a quality control person that has, or in company that has, uh, done QC for products of your type. 
um, that understand what the typical fail points are in the production process because um, like it's, there's an old adage, like you don't know what you don't know. And so if you don't know like where the potential for your watch to fail is, then you don't know what to look for. And, and that's the situation I had. And so if I had worked with a quality control partner that had worked with watches, they could easily say, this is a, a common mistake that can happen. And uh, let's look out for that. Yep. And, uh, I mean, we do it all the time as a moth. <laughs> we do it all the time. It's like, if we don't have the expertise for a specific product, we, we outsource the quality control because it's just, like you said, you need to have somebody who understands those products, has, has, an, has a, at least a little bit more of a technical background, a, a quality control company that's inspected those and seen the issues before that can anticipate those the, the issues that might come up. And then another thing is you can also consult with a mechanical engineer in the design phase. In fact, you should be consulting with a mechanical engineer in, design, in the design phase, but specifically not just a mechanical engineer who has made products in other places. It has to be somebody that has designed for manufacturing experience because you can come up with the coolest, nicest design for a product, but it's it might not be the most practical for manufacturing. So that's something that I always tell people is like you should be consulting with a technical person who understands manufacturing for China, but can also help you design the product. And, and then if you do it like that and you even maybe even incorporate uh, the mechanical engineer when you start sourcing the products and have them discuss with the factory, you're going to eliminate a lot of issues very early. Uh, yeah, and then, and, and then also the turnaround in terms of the feedback from the factory and then redesigning the product is also going to be much faster. I, I mean, think about how important that is too. Like, can, can you imagine like you have this sweet idea and it's like uh, your baby, like you, you just gave birth to this wonderful idea and you want to mature this thing to life and, and it's looking great and everything's going well. And then because you didn't have a clear understanding of how this product like was manufactured, like the whole idea just falls apart and the whole business that was created just falls apart. So I think if you consider it in that way, like it really becomes like crystal clear how important like manufacturing is to a physical product business. Like if you don't get that right, you don't have a business in the long run. Yeah, of course. Uh, and that's leading to, sorry, I'm just opening up my phone here. Um, and that's leading to what you're doing right now. Uh, which is launching your own uh, course, right? Little program. What, yeah. What, what are you calling it? Uh, well, the the unofficial name. We're so it's we're kind of like work testing it, beta testing. But Vault is what I'm calling it because it has double meaning. Like you know, the Vault when gymnasts run down the the strip and then they jump on the thing and do their flips and everything. Yeah called a vault which i thought would be a really that's, cool that's, image. that's called a fault a vault yeah it's called vaulting okay <laughs> or or like when a when a you know a pole vaulter they run down the yeah they're both called vaulting yeah. um and it's a really cool image to think like you know you put the forward momentum in that effort in and then you launch into the sky right mm -hmm. um and do some really cool tricks and you mm -hmm. come back to, to tell the tale um, so yeah, it's called vault and, and essentially what it is, is a, a framework for how 
to bring a product to life, um, but specifically around the idea that we want to build lasting brands. Um, you know, one thing I think the entrepreneurs that are listening to this will maybe relate to is that there's a lot of stuff out there about how to make money fast and how to get, um, you know, how to get quick money. You know, there's, there's all sorts of different options for that. And, and that's typically like the trend that you see with online marketing, if that's what you want to call it, or this kind of like digital nomad scene. It's like travel the world and make as much money as possible, bro. And, you know, so there's like this, this very crystallized dream of like making money that funds a lifestyle, but there's not a lot of substance around uh, how that actually works out. And then if you do end up pursuing one of these kind of like uh, fly by night business models, they typically um, a cash grab. And what I mean by a cash grab is you've set up a system to make some cash really quick, but not something that has legs to last the long run. So you can think of it in terms of like a business model that has a sprint, but not a marathon level to it. And, you know, like drop shipping is a good example of this or private labeling on Amazon FBA as well, where you're dependent on a platform in the situation of Amazon, you can easily get kicked off. Or in the, in the situation of drop shipping, you don't have brand control over the products that you create. Um, you're just creating, you know, like products that will sell basically. And so it's great to have products that sell, but if you want to be a real business owner, you've got to have a brand. And so, you know, when I'm creating this, this program, this coaching program, it's, it's all around helping people to think long-term and how to develop a brand concept and idea. And then, you know, solidifying that with a physical product and what is that, what is that brand idea? And then what's the product that goes along with that idea? And, you know, how does the market react to that? Making sure that there's actually a need for what you want to create or there's a desire for it. And then also taking it to factories and making sure that it's possible to create your dream. Because again, like we were just talking about it, if you go down this path of like, you have a dream and then it all comes crumbling down because you didn't do the, the, the kind of vetting at the beginning to make sure it was all possible. And that would be a terrible tragedy. And so really helping to prevent that as well. And of course, launching and then pivoting into early brand growth and beyond. And, and again, the focus being on keeping a brand that you can be proud of, you know, a year, three years, five years from now, and not just something that, you know, if grandma asks at the Thanksgiving dinner table, you know, how's that business going? And you're like, oh, I'm not doing that anymore. Like we want it, <laughs> we want it to be around. Yeah. And before we dive a little bit deeper into the program, uh, we have another question again from Mekong uh, Tropical Farm, which is also like, where, where are you? Uh, where, where are you located? Like she's at, he or she's asking some solid questions. Is Guangzhou generally the best place to have clothing, specifically skirts manufactured in China? Uh, yeah. Guangzhou in terms of textiles in China, Guangzhou is, is, probably the best place. Um, so, I mean, the simple answer is yes. Uh, I think when it comes to textiles, it's not going to be the cheapest, but you will be getting a high quality product and you will be able to leverage getting uh, lower MOQs for those skirts. And then also relatively 
they'll have a wide selection of designs and there'll be a lot of manufacturers to choose from. So I definitely think you should check out Guangzhou for that. It, you can go to, if you physically fly to, fly to China, you can go to the markets and like walk around in one day and source, you know, 50 different suppliers for the skirts. Is this person's handle Mekong Tropical Farm? Yeah, Mekong Tropical Farm. Australia. Hey. Australia, okay. Australia in the house. I was thinking Mekong River, like Vietnam. Maybe, maybe it is. Who knows? Uh, maybe they traveled to Vietnam. All right, Mekong, keep uh, keep up the questions if you if you yeah. have any more. I really appreciate the, the connection to Mekong. I'm curious. Ah, it, it is based on 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 the Vietnam River. Okay. Yeah. Nice. That. Well, if you're ever in Saigon, hit me up. Look at that synergy right there. You got the Vietnam. yeah. <laughs> Um, only on the Made in China podcast, folks. <laughs> Making stuff, happen. Making connections live. So going back to the program, uh, can you talk a little bit more about the specifics of how you, you know, how it's structured, how you teach the, the, the people? It's, it's sort of a combination of coaching and, you know, lesson plans, right? Yeah. So... Yeah, the, and, and it's very much in beta right now. So I just opened up the site where people can sign up. So if you're interested, you can always go over to my site. It's lukefrancis.me. But um, essentially what it is... Can you type the site into the chat? Yeah, thanks, man. Can you, lukefrancis.me. Can you type it into the chat, in the live chat? Yeah. And, and that's, you know, to that point, I'm looking for... Okay. Yeah, sorry about this. This is the behind the scenes that you guys don't see. You know, like if I was, if this was not live, this is recorded. We'd splice all this together. It sounds super slow. Like you know, yeah. If this is the first time that you're listening to me to a podcast, it's not. It's not. It's raw. Like we we try to be as, like I don't really cut out things that we talk about. We just cut out like little sides and things like that that are just not relevant. But right. So yeah, you can uh, continue. Yeah. So basically what I'm doing is taking the distillation of everything that I've, um, you know, worked on over the past three years here with the different brands I've worked on from multi hundred million dollar brands like Pelican or Procter and Gamble to the smaller kind of direct to consumer brands. And I put together a step-by-step process for how to, how to kind of develop the idea that you have and then grow it and then make a lasting brand and that looks like the process the framework with actionable coaching and so the way it works out it's a three-month process that'll take you from ideation all the way through to pivoting to ongoing brand growth um, with a heavy focus on lasting brands and I keep saying that over and over again because I'm not looking to work with people that are uh, just they just want product opportunities um, but if you have an idea that you want to be working on five years from now, then we're a really strong fit. And to that point, I'm, I'm looking for five beta coaching clients um, to get this thing kicked off the ground. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the framework for how it's going to be set up. And like I said, I just got the website live a, a couple of days ago and you can go check it out, sign up for the email list and you'll kind of get in the funnel there. And uh, you know, we can talk from that point. What are the what would you say are the main differences between uh, your sort of your program versus some of the other ones that are out there? Yeah, I think 
a lot of a lot of programs are heavily focused on launch and I think right like in, in some sense it's what what you can market easily you know when I started thinking about how I wanted to market this it's easy to say like go make hundred thousand dollars on Indiegogo or Kickstarter or you know launch your brand to thousands of customers and that's that's something that's really sexy to market so a lot of brands are focused on the launch phase but or a lot of other courses or programs out there are focused on the launch phase but the problem with that is it, it makes the program content heavily focused on uh, a single product and making like uh, just, just kind of trying to make a product profitable one time rather than thinking of the longevity of how to build uh, a voice around a brand that you can keep building new product lines on top of. You know, because a brand sets a foundation and then you can build on top of that brand with new product lines, new partnerships, new opportunities that just keep blossoming out of that brand. And so we're really looking to... Uh, focus on, you know, early on validating that the brand idea is even worthwhile. Like if your brand didn't even have a product, but just like the way that you want to communicate to your customers, are those people interested in that idea? And then from there, let's build a product. Okay. And say, are those people interested in the product? Okay. Yes. They've validated that they are. All right. Then now let's take that product to market. Let's put some money behind that and make sure that they want some want to put the money behind actually paying for what you created and there let's just blow it up we know that people are willing to pay for it now how do we get it to the masses and that's you know that's kind of like the 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 total phase development there but then at the end it's really heavily focused on all right now let's let's talk about where do we go from here is it you know we've got one product under our belt but what's next and how do we keep building this brand voice and talking to our customers so is uh, what's what's that kind of person that should be thinking about joining your program? Is it people that want to do original design or could it also be private label? Absolutely. I don't think private label would be a strong fit because uh, it's, it's quite a different model. And I think oftentimes the mindset that comes with private label is, is fundamentally different and that's fine. Like people are building great businesses on private label, but um yeah, if you have if you have ambitions to build, you know, your own uh, products with a unique contributing factor in in a specific segment. So, you know, whether that's a, you know, just for instance, the socks that um, our our friend Ralph is making, and I'm helping him with, um, they have a very unique element to them, and that's that they have silver, along with other things. Like he completely designed a new construction model for the way you build socks, but. He's also ingrained silver into the socks, which helps to fight against blisters and odor, which are two major problems that <laughs> hikers have. And so these are, you know, a fundamentally uh, new introduction into the hiking market. And so that's the kind of product that's going to work well with the, the coaching program I've put together. And really, like, if you're somebody that has an idea or you've, you have a product and a brand that you've already started, but you're not seeing the sales traction you want, I think there's, you're, you might be at this phase. And, and this is something I was like uh, reminiscing on in my early days um, because of some questions Rico sent me ahead of time. Like one of the biggest challenges in early um, business development is clarity and focus because uh, 
there's so much information out there. It's, it's overwhelming and everything sounds like a good idea, depending on who you're listening to. And, uh, and everybody's got an opinion on what works best. And so you start pursuing so many different avenues for growth. They're like, maybe I shouldn't do this business model. Maybe I should do that. And what I found works really extremely well is having like a single direction and a single source of truth. So a a single direction is just being sure about what you're doing and how you're going to get there. And then a single source of truth is like who you go to or the source of the information you go to on how you're going to execute on the direction you want to go in. And, and not really straying from that because like the more that you listen to more voices, a lot, oftentimes you'll get completely torn on, on what approach you should take. And, uh, but yeah, if you can focus and keep that clarity as an early entrepreneur, like that's where things start to go uphill um, really fast. Uh, one of the things you mentioned as well is that uh, you want to have a more, I guess because of your experience with the manufacturing side of things, you want to put a more heavy emphasis on on understanding yeah. manufacturing. Yeah. I think you kind of touched on that briefly before, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's absolutely crucial. Like a lot of, you know, if you're talking about other programs and I, I can't speak for all, all programs and I'm sure they're great, but for the one that I'm developing, um, I, I know that we don't want to just put an emphasis on, can you market, can you sell? Uh, because, the answer to that is like, yes, you can learn that and you can get really great at that. And that's something that I can help you with really well too. But the other aspect to selling a product is actually having a product that works in the way that you've marketed it. And if you don't deliver on what you've marketed, then you don't have a business. Like I've said three times so far on this podcast alone. And so we, you know, if you're in the business of building a lasting brand, then we also need to make sure that you're in the business of building a quality product. And so there's going to be heavy emphasis on making sure that you're validating not only the product, but also validating the, that your manufacturing uh, supplier can create what you've designed. Because if they can't, you got to go back to the drawing board. So I think two questions people might be asking is like, okay, so if I'm coming on as a beta uh, tester, what what would be the benefit of that versus me waiting, you know, a little a little while until you've sort of established the program? And then the second question, I'm sure, is people will be wondering about money. Yeah, well, that would be the first benefit. <laughs> it'll be it'll be substantially less than it it will be. Um, but the the you know realistically, the, the the program is already there. The coaching is already there. You know what what it's going to look like is already there. Um, it's just a matter of implementing it and, and having those first early, uh, beta testers in to be the first ones putting their hands up saying, you know what, I want to take my, my idea to the next level. I want to make it a reality, or I want to take my brand and actually skyrocket to success and not just something that, you know, was an idea and I tried and it didn't work out. And so, you know, if that's where you sit, then this is a great opportunity for getting in now. Now, uh, you know, like I said, major benefit, the cost is substantially lower for early actors. You know, anybody that comes later is going to, you know, if you're an early actor, they're benefiting from what we did together. And so they're going to have to pay more for what we learned together. That makes sense. Um, Is there anything else that you wanted to, to sort of touch on with regards to the course? 
yeah, I mean, just check it out. LukeFrancis.me. Like one other thing, like I will say is, um, it's not a course. So I want to stray away from using those, the terms because I'm heavily involved. Like, um, send me an email. It's more of a, a coaching program. Yeah. That's what, yeah. And that's why I say coaching, you know, send me an email vault at LukeFrancis.me, um, V-A-U-L-T. Um, and let's, let's start a conversation because, uh, sorry, the, <laughs> the distraction there, but, um, yeah, let's start a conversation because one thing that I'm really interested in is being hyper engaged with whoever is a part of the program, um, and just participating along with you and what you're building. I, and the reason I say coaching is because it's super important that you put in the work to build the brand that you want to have around in five, 10 years from now that you're super proud of. Um, as opposed to if you've got the money, you know, hiring on somebody else to do the marketing for you and hiring on somebody else to do every part of the business for you. Um, if, if you're not the one willing to put in the work for your own brand, then it's not going to go to where you want it to be. So what I want to do is come alongside you and make sure that it does reach the full potential that it has. And so I'm going to be very engaged. We'll have regular calls all the like 24 seven email support. Uh, well, maybe not 24, but you know, significant email support always available. Um, and so, you know, yeah, send me an email and, uh, you know, let's start this conversation though. Awesome. We've been, uh, we've been going for almost a, a little bit over an hour, man. Is great. it already an hour? Yeah. It's a 73 minutes in the street. Um, yeah. So it doesn't feel like it. <laughs> I guess that's it's sort of start to get into the the closing closing question. So, where where do you see yourself in the next three to five years? Yeah, I see myself coaching brands to uh, be substantial players in their prospective market, um, and leveraging that coaching experience into uh, another foray into brand development of my own. So I've been helping other brands for the past three years really grow. Um, but you know, I do have ambitions on my own front for building my own product, but, uh, I've got a timeline on that. So in five years from now, I think we can be having another interview Rico where, uh, you know, I'll be introducing a product to market in a big way. Nice. Uh, what are, I guess, what is the smallest thing you've done that's brought you the largest results in, in your life and business? Yeah, I think showing up and shaking hands, meeting people, just not being afraid. And I don't know, some people might listen to that and say like, I mean, that's terrifying. Like if you're an introvert, that sounds terrible. But to me, it's a small thing because I'm fairly extroverted. But just meeting people, like every major excuse me, but every major um, success or, or thing that's benefited me in my life has come on the back end of a connection that I've had. And they're not always the same connections that lead to, you know, great kind of uh, serendipities, but um, new connections lead to, to new, uh, new opportunities. And so, I don't know, that... It seemed, it's like the simplest thing. You just have to go meet people, you know, look online at Facebook groups, say who's in my city, or even just start Facebook chats. But like that literally has changed my life. I wouldn't be doing anything that I'm doing right now, even interviewing with you, Rico, if it wasn't for um, meeting the right people. Nice. 
what are three books, podcasts, or vlogs, blogs you'd recommend people check out if they wanted to understand you better? Well, obviously made in China. <laughs> but uh, there's a book called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker that I, I really got a lot of benefit out of. I've, I've been in insomnia ever since I started my entrepreneurial journey. And I think it's just because it's a high stress thing to be an entrepreneur. Um, and so I've had trouble sleeping. And I got this book to really understand like what could be the triggers for that and how I could overcome that. And I will say this, like outside of maybe the, the networking and meeting people, like learning how to sleep has significantly impacted my, uh, my output, you know, how much I can do on a daily basis, how, the quality of that output, and then just my general success overall. Um, directly, like, it's really hard to, to see any bigger correlation than to, like, when I learned how to sleep well, like, eight hours solid every night. Um, that just really helped me significantly. So I would say why we sleep. Check it out, Matthew Walker. He's a doctor of sleep science and excellent book. It reads super simple. It's not like a, uh, you know, like a textbook or anything. Um, other books, I don't know. I've been reading, like, I've been trying to focus on getting it direct from the source and not, not trying to get information from like gurus or um, people like that are doing uh, profiles of successful people, but I do like to read biographies. Like I, I'm listening to the Steve Jobs biography right now by Walter Isaacson. I like the 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 Rockefeller biography, Titan. Love that biography. Um, and uh, that one's by Ron Chernow. If you are interested in that one, but uh, and then the video, like I, I don't know about podcasts and and blogs, but something that I've been doing a lot recently is figuring out like who are the big players in the industries that I'm in. So for instance, for like socks, like Patagonia or um, like uh, Everlane or um, Mac Weldon and figuring out these, these companies that have kind of made it in the digital space, like really selling well online and uh, knowing who their CEOs are and then going and listening to all the interviews that the CEOs do and just really getting all the wisdom that they've had for the past you know, two to five years or 10 years growing their business um, to the point that it is because there's so much value in, in, especially for early stage entrepreneurs and saying, okay, like this business is doing what I want to do. And like, how did they get there? Cause they started where I started, you know, they started with an idea that kind of maybe felt like a fraud, you know, like a fake, like I, I am I a real businessman here? Like this is just like a fun idea I have to like, now it's a significant business. Like in the case of, Mac Weldon getting acquired or Bonobos, the, the, uh, the pants company got acquired by Walmart for $360 million or um, Dollar Shave Club for a billion by Unilever. Like these direct to consumer brands that just started seven to 10 years ago are massive companies. And it was just a dream at one point. So, you know, I'm listening to those CEOs look like going through all their YouTube content and just saying like, what are they saying? Cause there's a lot of people talking about how to grow or how to, how to do gross hack, but like these guys actually did it and I want to know what they did. Uh, there's a, there's a question for you about your program, but, uh, just before I, I tell you that, uh, just to add to that, this, so there's a podcast I started listening to re recently. It was recommended to me by Carl, uh, 
you know, our buddy Carl, it's called How I Built This um, by, I think the guy's name is Guy, Guy something, Guy Rich or something. But it's essentially, it's that he interviews the CEOs of, of these large corporations. So he interviewed uh, the guys from Dollar Shave Club. He interviewed um, the guy from Bonobos, uh, at Squarespace, um, Instagram, there's a bunch of all of the CEOs of these these companies that started, you know, two, three, four, five years, ten years ago that have become unicorns um, or or you know hundreds of sold for hundreds of millions of dollars. So I definitely think that's a it's a great resource hearing directly from from these. Is it's, it's called How I Built This. How I Built This, yeah. Nice. I'll have to check uh, that out. So Mekong Mekong Tropical Farm asks, uh, Are you coaching people to sell on a certain platform like Amazon or? eBay, etc. Or are you coaching people to create their own website? And then the, then the follow-up to that is, and also, does your coaching also focus on logistics shipping for, for first-time importers like myself? Yeah, so the second part, absolutely yes. Um, it's, it's a must. Like you, you have to figure out logistics partners and manufacturing partners if you want to successfully deliver on what you just marketed. Um, and so that's, hundred percent a part of, of the coaching program. Um, as far as the platforms, if so the, the major focus again for the fifth time is brand. And so your own, you have to have ownership of every aspect of your brand, which includes where you're marketing and selling it. So the heavy emphasis is on your own website, but then you, of course you have these wonderful other channels like Amazon, like a walmart.com, jack.com, you know, uh, eBay, brick and mortar, even that you can go to and sell, but primarily you want to have control over where you're selling on Amazon. You don't have control, no matter what anybody tells you, you really don't have any control. Walmart's the same jets, the same. So you want to, you want to keep as much control as possible over your customers and over their experience and over the feedback loop that you hear from your customers. And the, the best way to do that is to be able to sell your own brand on your own site. But then of course you want to take advantage of any other channels that will allow you to sell your brand as well. Awesome. Uh, guys, yeah, we're closing out. So if any of you guys that are on the live stream have any questions you'd want, uh, want Luke to answer, let us know. Bring them on. Yeah. And if, if there's any questions afterwards, like, um, you know, you can, well, anybody can email me, of course, and I'll respond. I love replying to emails. Um, <laughs> never thought I'd say that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, send me an email and then vault at lukefrancis.me. And then also, if you have any questions, like I, I guess I can go in the YouTube comments, but, right? Uh, what about now? And close it up, man. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for watching for the live stream. Is it still loud? Well, now you're talking louder. I can hear you. Oh, okay. So it wasn't that. I'll, it wasn't that the music was loud. It was just I wasn't speaking uh, loud enough. Anyways, um, yeah, guys. Thanks for uh, listening and watching live. Uh, we're gonna. I guess while I'm still in the Philippines and I have solid internet, I'm gonna try to do a little bit more of these live streams. Uh, if you want to reach out to Luke Francis, if you want to reach out to Luke Francis, that is lukefrancis.me or v
vault at lukefrancis.mg. Mekong Tropical Forum, thanks. Uh, thank you for being a supporter of the channel. And if you want to reach out to us, that's, and you're going to check out the show notes when we officially release this episode, that's sourcefindasia.com slash made in China. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, podcast at sourcefindasia.com. See you guys next week. Thank you.